have such sights to show you. This is the Lament Configuration Horror Podcast. I'm Greg Knox, and I'm joined by a lady who will tear your soul apart, our resident body count girl, reoffend. And Jesus wept. Thanks for the intro, Greg. Um, it's time to raise some hell, and it's already begun. So this is our second instalment in the Hellraiser special show, where we're covering films three to nine in the epic franchise. Yes, and similarly to most of our shows, actually, but especially the last one, um, there'll be spoilers all over the fucking place. So if you have never seen these films and you want to see them, which for some of them you probably don't want to, in all honesty, but some of them you might actually want to see. Um, So Rhea has our usual warning for those of you who are averse to such things and bad language. Indeed. So if you don't want to watch these sequels, we've watched them for you and this is like a handy summary um, of what is to follow should you not want to spend the time doing that. So the warning as follows. Warning. The following broadcast may contain Hellraiser spoilers, extreme language, violence, and topics considered graphic or adult, not for those of a sensitive disposition. So, following Hellbound Hellraiser 2, a New World, the company who made uh, the first two Hellraiser films, and Clive Barker's own production company both go out of business. Um, Clive Barker's company went out of business because of Nightbreed, which is the film he made after Hellraiser. And now I've seen Nightbreed, I've seen it in kind of its theatrical form, which is fucked up completely by the studio, and I've seen it in a longer form at Fright Fest. And the film is kind of interesting, but flawed, ultimately very flawed. I think Barker was kind of too ambitious and he kind of, yeah, his story doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, But anyway, the film did not do very well at the box office and as a result, his company went bankrupt. Um, So long story short, the rights for Hellraiser end up at Dimension Films, which is a production company owned by Miramax, the film company owned by the Weinstein Brothers. Which brings us to Hellraiser 3, and there were various different versions of the story of Hellraiser 3 kind of in development at one time or another. Um, Peter Atkins, who is actually in this film as one of the uh, really shit Cenobites that we're going to talk about, um, he wrote this film as well as Hellraiser 2 and 4. Basically, he had about six different stories that him and Clive Barker kind of talked about, and Basically, this is just one of them that they decided to do. Um, Other stories included a film taking place in ancient Egypt. And as I mentioned on the last show, there was plans to bring back uh, Claire Higgins' character, Julia. Um, But that didn't happen. Um, So instead, we got this instead. Um, So it's directed by Anthony Hickox. It is. It's, It's a 1992 film after our last one, which was 89. So quite a large gap between that. And um, the synopsis, I mean, it is difficult to to place, to like you say, there's a lot of different ideas for the stories. So the short version is um, a reporter must send the newly unbound pinhead who's come back and his Cenobites or legions back to hell. So that's just a really brief synopsis. Yeah, so the story of this one, kind of in short form, is the Pillar of Souls that appeared at the end of the previous film um, is bought by a yuppie douchebag, basically called J.P. Monroe, who owns this club called The Boiler Room, Ah. and... Essentially, it's a third film in the series um, where essentially it's one character has to kill people to revive another character, in this case, Pinhead. Yeah, with the introduction of a lot 
of new creative Cenobites, which actually made me like this film a lot more as soon as I got into that whole thing. Right, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I I quite liked this film. I thought it was fun, but I'm guessing that you didn't, and I've heard a lot of other people slate this. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, my kind of feeling on it is this. I would say after Hellbound, it is probably the best Hellraiser sequel, if only because it's actually sticking close to the actual Hellraiser mythology and it's actually a proper Hellraiser story. For sure, it's definitely the best of the ones that we're going to discuss on this show. But... I I liked it the most. However, (laughs) there's a lot of things about this film that I really don't like and that irk me. Let's put it that way. Well, from from my uh, my impression of it is that it's fairly cheesy in places as well. So I did guess that you weren't going to like it, but I I thought there were a lot of fun elements to this film, a lot of creativity, like I say, and a lot of new interesting Cenobites that you get to see sort of how they're made. Add to that that the body count is quite high, so we've got twenty three deaths in this one. Um, although potentially it's a lot more because at one point there's a scene of utter destruction caused by Pinhead, which I think is the point where I decided that I actually really quite like this film. Um, so potentially there's maybe a hundred deaths in this film, but we're not really sure. It's difficult to gauge. So again, it's like they just topped the second one by going even further with the amount of deaths that um, the Cenobites and Pinhead himself causes. And you do get a, a large feature of Pinhead and a lot more of a viewing of his character and him being evil, which is enjoyable. Yeah, um, I take all that on board. However, as we've kind of, you've mentioned it a couple of times, I feel I must bring it up now, even though it happens near the end of the film. So the new kind of Cenobites are all shit, Literally, they are all <laughs> shit without exception. Now, the worst one, and people always say this, but it's very true, is the DJ Cenobite or CD Head Cenobite, I believe is his official name, which is yeah. ridiculous looking. It's fucking ridiculous looking. It's a thing that throws CDs at people and kills them. I mean, come on, that, that is fucking ridiculous. I just found that really funny. I, it's just an element of comedy. Um, I quite like the one called Barbie Cenobite, where it's barbed wire in the face and there's like a camera head Cenobite which is a little bit ridiculous but at the same time quite creepy Uh, and uh, another one called Dreamer Cenobite yeah I mean the camera head guy I really didn't like because in the last show we talked about Dr. Chenard when he's a Cenobite he comes out with some one-liners that could be seen as cheesy however it's in the delivery and it's the tone is quite serious so it actually works quite well I another one of the issues I have with this film is they basically try to turn Pinhead into Freddy Krueger and Ooh. I don't know the Nightmare on Elm Street films at this point were all basically like a joke and Freddy was just like a really shit comedian and they kind of carried that off into this one so you've got this guy with the camera head so mm-hmm. that's a wrap and it's like oh, oh for yeah. fuck's sake those bits did make me laugh, but I have to say I quite like the Pistol Head um, Cenobite. I thought he was pretty evil in places. I like the Barbie Cenobite, um, and I didn't mind the humour in it because I thought it was quite a fun film, but I would have preferred it to be more serious. Um, however, they'd already done that, so I think they kind of wanted to introduce a slight bit of um, comedy into this third film. 
Yeah, I didn't like the piston head center bite, if only because, well, what is it he actually supposed to do? Like, because the other three center bites, you kind of get what their their weapons are. You get, like, well, we got a guy who throws, who shoots rockets at people. We got a guy who throws CDs at people. We got a guy who throws, like, flamethrowers at people, whatever. You know, what the fuck is, like, J- it's JP Monroe as Cenobite. Like, what is he supposed to even be doing? It doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah. how is he supposed to hurt people? Well, he's just creepy and he's kind of um, got this large sexual element to what he's saying um, because that was how he was when he died. He was, like, being very overtly sexual. Um, so the, the piston head I accepted as just, like, the other Cenobites. It's just the way that he looks. But instead of it being, it's just a moving element to his head, which has got stuck there, but that's how he's become kind of uh, injured or killed as he was transformed into Cenobite and it's just stuck there. So I thought that was quite a a creepy element. And I think it worked much better um, as Cenobites who were visually just threatening looking rather than actually having weapons being fired out of them or something that is being used in their body to kill people. Like, I just preferred the general kind of slasher weapons that you would use, and the intimidating looks of the Cenobite, rather than actually having, like, a sort of, uh, like, action figure style, you know, something that they do repetitively that works as a function as a killing machine. Like, more kind of... um Terminator style, do you know what I mean? I, I didn't really yeah, like yeah. that kind of... I didn't like that element of it, but I did find it funny, so it kind of lightened the film. Like, I didn't, I didn't mind that. I thought it was fun, but I can understand why you would dislike it. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of the Cenobites, and we'll, we'll leave it there, shall we? <laughs> so, the story is we've got a character called Joey Summerskill, who's a reporter played by Terry Farrell, who reminded me of an older-looking uh, Lindsay Lohan. That's not a bad thing, yeah. by the way. So she basically is this reporter. She's not taken seriously in her job. And essentially, she she's at a hospital and this guy comes in with chains sticking out of him, which makes no sense compared to the previous films because, you know, where the chain's coming from doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And he's the first death in the film because he explodes. Yeah, and um, like you say, the... A lot of it centered around the boiler room club, and um, that's quite a cool sort of location um, for the deaths. And there's this just this epic scene. Like I won't go through everything because we've got a lot to get through today. But yes. there's this there's this epic scene where there's just a succession, like almost like a conga line of deaths going on, where there's like chains thrown out and people kind of develop into rows and different things are fired out and this room is like kind of like obviously it's, a, it's called the boiler room so it's like a basement-esque type room nightclub and there's no way that they can get out the doors are like behind pinhead and most probably locked and it's just death after death after death including like there's some ice cubes that are like sharp and that fly out and hit somebody there's loads of interesting deaths going on and, um, like I say, they sort of gather into rows and he's like pull, pulling the chains and everything through several at a time. And then at, at some point the door closes and he's in there and you just hear a lot of chaos. And it's obvious that there are way more deaths going on behind the door, but you're not sure how many. So the whole room is just 
obliterated of people with bodies everywhere. So that's quite a standout film and it obviously contributes to this high death count. And like I say, with one-upmanship from the, from the second film, um, they increase the death count in this one. Oh yeah, they increase it by lows. And I imagine that you probably would like that aspect of it because so many people die. I didn't really like the scene because it just looked ridiculous so you've got a woman who yeah she's killed with an icicle but it turns into pinhead's head and it goes right into her mouth i thought that looked kind of silly Um, yeah that was that was silly yeah i didn't didn't really like that bit and we got the uh, guy who becomes the uh, cd head cenobite where he basically his cds basically all attack him that's really stupid um Do you like the people all linked with hook chains? To me, it just reminded me of the human centipede, basically. It just looked, <laughs> just kind of looked like that. Way before that happened. Yeah, though. way, way before that. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've also got this in, this kind of introduction to the fact that they recognise that heavy metal fans also really like Hellraiser. <laughs> so the boiler room is like, you know, kind of full of like rockers and... Um, some metalheads and there's like a brief scene where there's like an uh, an LA based metal band called Armored Saint who play a bit of one of their songs in it so there's kind of that nod to like rock and metal and this nightclub so I think the whole like nightclub um, basis and location for the film was all just kind of to get that element in there and like a good excuse to get the band in there which is it looks awesome and it's great for them you know I'm sure at the time it was like probably so cool to just get asked to be in in the third hellraiser film Mm. um so i quite liked that element of it and you know a real life band being in there yeah yeah the boiler room did look really cool it did like look like the sort of place i would probably have gone to if i was if it was a real club and it i was alive in new york at that point um because interestingly um the first two films it's not really 100 percent clear where they're set but we are definitely in america now we are definitely in new york city um so there are bits of this that i like um it's very gory i do like the gore aspect of it like particularly the first death where we have a woman basically getting her skin ripped off um this is after um she so her character basically has sex with jp and um it's quite amusing because the actress who plays that character she didn't want to get naked so basically in the scene um You've got uh, the actor playing J.P. Monroe basically with his hands on her boobs for the whole time that they're having sex, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. It just looked like he was basically giving her boobs a massage, which is, <laughs> um, yeah, hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. <laughs> yeah, she's got those boots on, hasn't she? She's got, like, yeah. knee boots on or something. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, so yeah, Pinhead gets revived. He kills loads of people. And basically the idea behind this film the story of this film is that at the end of the previous film elliot spencer and pinhead kind of separated from each other so pinhead is now not even bound by hell so um you don't need to open the box room to appear he can just be around sort of all the time constantly and elliot spencer is kind of like sort of a ghost that appears in joey's dreams essentially and kind of he explains the plot and kind of what happened and kind of well you've got to get him back in the box you know he wants to destroy the box so again very similar to like nightmare on elm street yeah but yeah um i mean i would say overall 
I said, I just found it very, very cheesy because it's American. Uh, Americans, they can't do serious properly when it comes to their horror films, especially at this point. So I say it just is very, very cheesy. Um, the only scene that I really, really liked is the scene near the end in the church. I thought that was a great scene. Whereas- oh, that was epic with all the pyro. I re- yeah, I did really like that. There are a few um, cool quotes as well, like this one where I think it's Pinhead says, we're going to hell, ladies first. Mm. Um, there's a few references to his earlier quotes, like similar things that he says, like so much flesh, so many different pleasures, um, and go to hell and things like that, which are quite cool. There's also, like you say, with the introduction of humor in this, a bit like in that kind of Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger way, where it wasn't, it wasn't serious enough. It was a little bit silly in places. Um, one of the characters before he dies says, Jesus Christ. And the obvious in-joke that Pinhead refers to, he says, not quite. <laughs> because yeah, all all Hellraiser fans know that iconic Jesus wept phrase would find that funny. I, I did. It did generally get a, na- a laugh out of me. I don't know about you, but I enjoyed that. No, I, I like that quote. I think that quote's great. <laughs> it's sort yeah. of very wry. And um, Doug Bradley is really good in the film. I mean, he's good in all of them, really, even the shit ones that he's in. But <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, in this film, you actually, he's in it a lot. Like, yeah. Considering that the Cinemites are barely in the first two, he's sort of, you know, really, really, really takes advantage of that. Um, and yeah, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he's very, very good. He's definitely the best thing in the whole film by far. For sure. For sure. I definitely enjoyed, like, just having him as a feature in it. And the church scene, as you say, was awesome. I loved that. Yes. He said, I am the way, which is great. And he mocks Jesus, which is always a good thing, where you can get some good old blasphemy in a film. Controversy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Another Mm -hmm. thing I didn't like is Ashley Lawrence appears in this in a a kind of like a flashback, uh, in that there's a section of the plot where Joey asks for videotapes to be sent to her all the way from you know the Chenard Institute which apparently is still running and it's these scenes of kind of Kirsty again giving all this exposition about kind of how things work just in case you missed the first two films but I didn't like this because that made no sense because first of all like when was she supposed to have recorded these videotapes because bear in mind at the start of the previous film she wakes up in the hospital and then at the end of the film she leaves the hospital so at what point was she supposed to have recorded those that made no sense there was no internal logic there whatsoever so yeah yeah i didn't really like that yeah um did we have a vagrant in this film um i'm not sure like it's difficult to place because he does kind of appear in every single film doesn't he um, I don't remember the vagrant personally. I don't think he was in this, so there's a, a bit of a failure on continuation with that one. Like they ditched him, but then they kind of bring him back later. So like I like consistency. So I wasn't sure. Like I, I don't like the fact that he's not in this film. Um, I think it was quite a stereotypical bit at the end where, to finish with, like there's a lot of references to art in this. So obviously the puzzle box is quite a thing of beauty if you look at it. Actually, it's very intricate. Um, it could stand on the shelf as a piece of art. So they've sort of run with that idea and with the um, pillar of souls and everything. So there's a lot of references to art and like exhibitions and just having it on display in public places and things like that, where it's you know, quite possibly going to endanger people. So there's that sort of playing on your mind as you see in these being put up as like 
artwork and there's a stereotypical bit to finish with where the puzzle box is put into cement like she puts it in there to sort of get rid of it and we just mm. all know that when that happens in films that it's going to end up getting out of there because it's not destroyed it's just preserved so. oh of course so yeah it's a kind of a bit cliche a bit at the bit where i was like oh god you know can't believe she did that but okay makes sense there's going to be more sequels because hey there's nine altogether <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i mean yeah this was fairly successful at the box office so yeah obviously um yeah dimension obviously did want sort of to do as many films as possible because uh yeah they had uh, this and halloween on their roster at the time and scream as well so they were yeah trying to you know milk that horror cash cow as much as possible um just before we move on from this film um there's another thing that very very nightmare on elm street is there's a scene near the end where essentially joey kind of sends all these really shit cenobites and pinhead back into the box when whence there came and then she has like a, a daydream i guess because she keeps having all these dreams where like she's seeing her dad who died in the war and then she gives him the box and then it's actually pinhead in disguise and then i don't know him and elliot kind of have this sort of weird confrontation at the end and then they kind of merge into each other and you know again it just was too similar to nightmare on elm street for my liking really it was just a bit i don't know too derivative of that i found yeah i wasn't sure about those elements either to be honest i wasn't sure if it really added much to it but um yeah overall i enjoyed the film they got motorhead on board with it you know they've targeted the the audience the subcultures that they know like this franchise so far like the first and second film um so up to this point like i'm still loving the franchise up to the third one. i think it goes downhill from here it's safe to say yeah as a motorhead anything with motorhead in it is obviously a good thing and it's a fucking great song as well as i'm sure everyone will agree so yeah it's a good note to end on so definitely a good choice for a song to finish on but yeah so i mean it sounds as if i i hated the film i didn't hate the film i thought it was quite it was kind of fun it's definitely better than most of the other sequels by far but yeah it's just you could tell kind of each film in my opinion was successively getting worse um mm, so i agree yeah. <laughs> which brings us Ooh. to the fourth film uh, which is hellraiser bloodline now clive barker was he was an executive producer on hellraiser 3 hell on earth um now he's also credited as an executive producer on this film and again him and peter atkins had this idea this very ambitious idea for a story that took place over three time periods so one in the past about how uh, the lamachon family basically about them their lineage about how they created the box and then it's the modern day and then it's set in the future and it's quite yeah. an ambitious idea however it did not go according to plan let's put it that way yeah so this is a 1996 film so moving on to 96 um hellraiser bloodline um it is a one big excuse to set this on in space <laughs> on a yeah. spaceship which i find quite ridiculous um i like, i don't really like this film i don't like the title bloodline i didn't like that concept um, I didn't like that much about it, but there are a few elements that stood out that I did quite enjoy, and it wasn't as bad as some of the later ones, trying to be positive about this. <laughs> the, um, the history and the toy maker element of it was quite cool. 
Um, I'll read the synopsis anyway, just so you do have a definite summary. <laughs> In the 22nd century, a scientist attempts to right the wrong his ancestors have created. The puzzle box that opens the gate of hell and unleashes Pinhead and his Cenobite legions is what he's trying to correct. Yeah, so that is the synopsis. And indeed, that was kind of the story. Now, in a way, kind of the story behind the film is a lot more interesting than the film itself. So this film is directed by, in the credits, Alan Smithy. However, anyone who knows anything about film will know that Alan Smithy is the pseudonym that is used um, when a director believes that his work has been compromised and he doesn't want to put his name to something, so he's allowed to use a fake name. Um, So it was actually directed by Kevin Yaghar, who is actually best well known as the head puppeteer on the Child's Play franchise. Um, So that's kind of what he's known for mainly. And it was him who directed most of the film. However, um, the people at Dimension basically didn't like the fact that Pinhead wasn't in the film until 40 minutes in and they made all these changes to the story that he didn't approve of and there were all these rewrites which seem to happen a lot nowadays in big budget films so they brought in uncredited Joe Chappelle who is best known as a director of Halloween The Curse of Michael Myers which is one of the worst Halloween sequels Um, so they brought him in to kind of finish the film off and the film is uh, a best way I can describe it is it's an ambitious mess, <laughs> essentially. You can kind yeah. of see what they were trying to do, but the end result, it just didn't fully work. Although there are good bits in it. Uh, I also like the section set in France near the beginning where you kind of see how the box is created and you've got the Angelique character is created. Oh, and that for me, that's the best part of this film. It's like the female Cenobite developed and... Uh, with with her own name and she's very sexy in in her final form like Cenobite with this update to the costume and the exposed brain and just the whole look of it um a lot of it revolves around her and how she gets there which is quite cool in itself but like you say it's messy so I did struggle with that although like I feel like she redeemed the film a lot by just being uh, the character the main character in this film for me yeah so i mean as we said there are three kind of timelines we've got the section in france which is too short and it's probably the best section and then we've got the scene which is set in the present day which is too long and it's probably the weakest section although there's a bits that are set in space so this uh, i kind of termed hellraiser in space um because any franchise where you get to a certain number of sequels, eventually you do end up in space. See Leprechaun, see Friday the 13th. <laughs> yeah, I This know. did it first yeah. before those films even. So uh, it's kind of a trendsetter in that regard. And it's kind of, it's where the, that punchline comes from, where it's like, well, if you run out of ideas, why not set it in space? So Exactly. Although we had a lot of firsts in Hellraiser, so that's why I find it an impressive franchise. And because it was created in the mid-90s, unfortunately, the CGI is not as kind of polished as it would be now. Even though this film was made for a high budget, it's actually got the biggest budget of all the Hellraiser films. It was like $4 million, which doesn't sound like a lot, but back then was. Um, got- Jesus wept. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I do like how you've got this really bad CGI of like the space station, and it just looks like something you'd get on like a PS1 or something like that. It just looks horrendous. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Like, you do have some, like I say, with Hellraiser pushing sexual boundaries with this kind of ongoing S&M and fetish 
connotations which are quite shocking and I'm sure, you know, raised a hell of a lot of eyebrows. Um, there's like a scene at, near the beginning, it's like s suspension, like with hooks from the ceiling, um, which is considered quite, like I say, sexual or erotic in a way. And it's this whole pain and pleasure thing that they're constantly bringing up. And they sort of, they get these quite like uh, sexually kind of and gory scenes in there together but still pass it off as horror and it's almost quite sort of like unnoticeable because you, you're looking at the gore so much but at the same time it's just it's just so kind of fetishy and dark that I'm sure they must have had a lot of complaints at the time but I find it so brave that they still push those boundaries and um, potentially you know getting it banned or pissing people off really. Yeah I mean what did you think about the scenes in the present day? Oh yeah, like I agree with you that that's the weakest section and I enjoyed the beginning and then I quite liked some of the space um, scenes, although like you say, the effects were a little ropey at times. The present day stuff was kind of boring and a little flat. Yeah, the present day stuff, is like it goes on for way too long. Essentially, it's like, it's, uh, yeah, it's the descendant of uh, Lamachon, essentially his son kind of gets kidnapped by Pinhead and Angelique and this weird kind of twin Cenobite thing of these two really dumb security guards. Uh, but that's the only kind of bad sort of Cenobite in this film compared to the last one. Uh, and yeah, I, d I didn't like that. I didn't like no, that bit at all. I didn't yeah. really like it easier. It was just dumb. And then, yeah, it's just well, meh. In, and, you know. Yeah, it's just meh. And in terms of deaths, so it's lower. Like, they focused more on the whole timeline thing and the you know the three different settings there are only six deaths in this um there's a girl called genevieve um the toy master's teacher like the older guy has quite a cool death with a chelsea smile there's jacques who has his heart ripped out by angelique yes and he's played by adam scott who's actually quite famous now but this is like actually one of his first films and there's like an unknown guy, like kind of a, a chubby guy in a suit. Oh yeah, point. I didn't like that part. That part was fucking stupid. Yeah. And then um, Jack, and then finally at the end we have Pinhead blown up in space. Yes, and that is considered like the character's actual death. So if you go on like Wikipedia, there's like a Hellraiser fan Wikipedia. And basically that is considered like the character's proper death. Like, and I think they wanted to finish it at that point. They were like, right, we've had enough now. The franchise needs to die. So I think that's kind of how they wanted to end it. And I mean, yeah, the bits in space are all right. If you ignore the fact they're in space, they're actually quite well done. One thing I find amusing is clearly it was the mid 90s. So virtual reality, everyone thought was going to be the next big thing. So we got all these kind of virtual reality scenes, which are so 90s, so so dated yeah it's very dated however they did balance that out with a very cool hell dog kind of stop motion thing which i really enjoyed i was like oh wait they, they've, they've managed to uh, pick it back up here at the end well done <laughs> yeah yeah i quite like the hell dog as well it was yeah it was all right um so yeah overall i would say that i mean this used to be considered to be the worst of the hellraiser films this was almost considered like a joke by like fans of the franchise because it's in space for some of it you know. <laughs> um, however little did they know kind of uh, where things would go from sort of there on in so after that 
Um, we come to um, so the first four Hellraiser films were all released in cinemas. However, every film since then has been sort of straight to DVD, starting with Hellraiser Inferno, which is the fifth film, and it's yeah. directed by Scott Derrickson. And this is the first film he directed. However, he has gone on to obviously direct Doctor Strange, and he directed Sinister, and he directed The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And even though, I mean, in my opinion, this is another controversial sort of Hellraiser film because the previous film does actually have like defenders now when it didn't sort of when it first came out this film was also very very heavily derided particularly by Clive Barker now Clive Barker this is the first film which he had no involvement on whatsoever and it's one of those kind of stories where what happened was um, Dimension they had a screenplay which had nothing to do with Hellraiser whatsoever and essentially they rewrote it to include Cenobites so Pinhead only appears a couple of times in the film and that really really pissed people off yeah I have to say you can tell that it was written that way and then they just introduced it um that being said I did feel that this film uh, I mean, I think I preferred it to the fourth one. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's, it's the year 2000 when this was made, Hellraiser Inferno. Um, and the, the plot is a shady police detective becomes embroiled in a strange world of murder, sadism and madness after being assigned a murder investigation against a madman known only as the engineer. So we're coming back to that original element again, the engineer of the puzzle blocks. Um, and, yeah, like I say, there's not much pinhead in this. I can see why it pissed people off, but I do feel like I think I preferred it to the forefront just because of the visuals of the actual Cenobites that are included in this. It's very kind of Silent Hill, pre-Silent Hill. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of get that. Yeah, I mean, as I said, you can tell, even though it's his first film, you can tell that Derrickson is talented. Um to me, the films that this kind of reminded me of was Seven. There's a very heavy Seven influence on the film, just in the way it looks, in the story, and also in like some of the things that happen in the film. But there's also, to me, there's a lot of Lynchian elements, um, particularly Twin Peaks. Like, for example, there's a scene which takes place at, well, it's kind of like a illegal casino, I think is what it's supposed to be. Like, that whole scene, to me, is so Twin Peaks. Is ridiculous. So it could have come out of like more Holland Drive or something like that. And near the end, there's some surrealist imagery, which again is very Lynchian to me. So yeah. anything like that, I'm gonna like. Yeah, I think that's why I enjoyed this one more than the fourth one, um, because I did like the visuals. Um, I liked the that kind of surreal Lynchian style, like you say. Um, I did feel like, so the Cenobites weren't formulaic or recognisable from the first four films, so we didn't really have much continuation of that, we just had kind of Pinhead thrown in there, like you say. Um, so there were all these kind of, almost like amputated, deformed um, versions of Cenobites, mostly with sewn-up body parts, um, pars- you know, there's like partial bodies, mostly with no eyes, sometimes with no mouth, or just elements of the original Cenobites put on there. But like I say, it's very kind of nightmarish, like Silent Hill style, um, which I really quite liked about this film. 
Mm. So essentially what you have is you have a detective who's played by Craig Sheffer, who is the main character in Nightbreed. Um, he is, I'm not going to lie, he's a bit of a dick. So he uh, is seen like taking money from like a, a dead body, like in the evidence room, and he cheats on his wife and he does drugs and generally not really the nicest guy in the world. However, it, I didn't find that you know, an impediment to enjoying the film. So anyway, he sees a prostitute and then she dies. And he was like, well, hang on, I was with this prostitute. You know, everyone's going to think that I did it. So essentially, because he's a dick, he tries to basically set up his partner so it looks like he did it. And yeah, kind of, as you said, there's a serial killer called The Engineer, uh, keeps taking fingers of children and leaving them at the scenes, which is again, very Seven-esque. And yeah, it was just, it's very different from the other films, which I think is necessary because with the formula, if you're like Friday the 13th, you kind of have to do a Friday the 13th film every single time. Otherwise, the, the fans are going to get annoyed. But with Hellraiser, because it's more cerebral, you can kind of, in my opinion, kind of try and get away with doing different things. And it's kind of bringing Pinhead back to that kind of moral kind of judge, that arbiter kind of role that he had in the first two films where he wasn't the antagonist. He's kind of just there to kind of, you know, be the, the judge on what's going on. Yeah. Um, they also mentioned the words of lament configuration and uh, like in connection with the engineer. So it's all kind of being explained a little bit more in that sense of things, um, which is obviously where we got the name of our show from. And yes. in this, we actually clock up the deaths quite nicely. There are 16 deaths in this, which actually thinking back on the film, I was more fascinated with the, the visuals and the Cenobites and the effects and the darkness of it all, let you say, all these, all the monsters basically. So I actually didn't like looking back on it. I didn't realize that there were 16 deaths. It felt like a lot, um, because I didn't feel like that was the center point of the film. Um, but still, like I say, clocking up a high number there. Yeah, so we kind of enjoy this one, so I'm going to spoil the ending. So if you don't want to know what happens, then skip forward a few minutes. But essentially, it's kind of very Jacob's Ladder. So if anyone who's not seen Jacob's Ladder, essentially it's this idea that you've already died and basically you're now in the afterlife and you're kind of seeing things that aren't really there. So in this case, it's the idea borrowing from Hellbound Hellraiser 2 of everyone has their own personal hell. So essentially Pinhead is punishing the main character for being a dick by making him live the same kind of few days over and over and over again. And it comes very Groundhog Day because like he tries to kill himself and he just ends up at the same point over and over again. So he's doomed to live this same few days for all of eternity, which, uh, yeah, it's pretty shit. I'm not going to lie, I probably wouldn't like that. Gosh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I guess that's like a well-selected sort of formula for one of the Hellraiser films. Because in theory, that sounds like a really great plot, but it was a little slow to watch. Um, I think it was a great idea. And um, like I say, I like the sort of visual aspect of the whole thing. So overall, not bad, I would recommend. Yeah, I mean, I, I say like you, I also preferred it to the fourth film. So yeah, that's a, more of a psychological thriller one to sort of recommend there. Then, um, so Clive Barker, he really, really didn't like Hellraiser Inferno at all, absolutely hated it. However, he had an uncredited role, and it's the last Hellraiser film that he actually had kind of some involvement with on the next film, which is called Hellraiser Hellseeker. 
um, which is directed by Rick Bota, who directed the next three sequels. And this is where things kind of start kind of going downhill. So, you know, the last film that we talked about, well, imagine that, but again, essentially. Yeah. Um, that is this film. Yeah, what's our man Rick Bota doing now then? Anything notable? Fuck knows, who knows. But he, uh, yeah, so he directed three Hellraiser sequels. Um, and yeah, this one, I mean, this one is kind of one of those films where like it's not terrible and it's not even really all that boring. It just, it does feel very sort of straight to DVD. It's sort of very kind of, you know, very low attention span and kind of, you know, it's kind of, again, it's, well, you, you'll tell us the synopsis of this one. I will, I will, and I'll give you my comments also. <laughs> so it's a 2002 film, like you say, Hellraiser Hellseeker. Not a bad title. And the rough synopsis, or the brief synopsis, is a shady businessman attempts to piece together the details of the car crash that killed his wife, rendered him an amnesiac, and left him in possession of a sinister puzzle box that summons demons. But what I got from this film, which was fairly slow, is that it features Kirsty's husband. So it's Kirsty Cotton that is his wife in this, and that's the Hellraiser connection. It's also a film with kind of a lot of headaches, a bit of surgery, uh, and <laughs> several bus rides. <laughs> yeah. Which is a little slow to watch. Um, not bad, like, yeah, but, but a little slow. <laughs> so, yeah. I've also got 11 deaths. So, it, like with this whole franchise, it seems to be consistently quite high. Um, which I think is what makes it great as kind of, like you say, a slasher series. Uh, they definitely have plenty of gore and action in there. So that's consistent. We can't fault that. No. But yeah, there, there are a lot of, uh, he has a lot of headaches and he doesn't really know why. So. And he keeps seeing things that aren't there as well. And then waking up and having bad dreams in random places and stuff like that. So... Yeah. yeah, not a lot of imagination in this one, I'm not going to lie. It's just basically like, oh, there's this thing. Oh, it's not there. Oh, okay. Oh, I've just woken up. Oh, okay. Now this is happening. Yeah, I have to, I have to say, I very rarely have nightmares after watching horror films, which I know a lot of people say that they do, but as, as we always talk about, we've gotten very used to watching lots of horror and gore, so it doesn't really affect me that much. Um, but I think like I've uh, around the time I was watching this... Um, I think I had dreams about broken ankles and things like that. So I think it must, the okay. visuals must have got to me at this point, or maybe it's just the fact that I then watched six Hellraiser films in like the space of a week. So <laughs> I don't know. Oh dear, it's starting to get well, to yeah. me at this point. I'm like, whoa, there's a lot of gore here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so this is again, it's about a guy called Trevor who is married to uh, lovely Kirsty from the uh, first two films. Although she's not really in it for very long, unfortunately. So basically, he is one of these people who must be a complete dick, but he doesn't remember being a dick. So all these women want to fuck him. Um, <laughs> but he, even though his wife is apparently dead, he's very faithful to his wife, even though apparently he, he clearly wasn't, because all these women seem to think, well, why are you acting like this? And... Basically, yeah, it's not really a lot to say. Again, it's the same story. It's Jacob's Ladder again. So yeah. it's basically a guy who's dead. He's in the afterlife. 
And essentially, Kirsty made a bargain with Pinhead and said, well, you know, I open this box, but, you know, I'll give you five people. So it's not even one. It's not even a like for like replacement. It's just we'll give you five souls being very generous. Well, this is what I like about her, though. She's a businesswoman and, you know, she knows how to uh, bargain with Pinhead and he just seems to always agree. So she's quite clever about it. And uh, yeah. she's very confident. She's up to game to five people this time. So, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, may- maybe he has a crush on her. What can I say? So, um, yeah. So essentially, she killed these three women that her husband was having an affair with. Um, there's another guy, this weird guy who works at his office, who apparently he made some bargain with that, like he's going to kill his wife and give him some of the insurance money. It's like, okay, not sure about that. Anyway, he died, and then obviously. You know, Trevor is like the last person who died. So um, yeah. at the start, they have a car crash and you think that she's dead, but it's actually that she shot him. Now, interestingly, the police don't notice the fact that this guy who they found, like, you know, in a car who's fallen off a bridge has got a fucking bullet in his head. You know, that hasn't <laughs> come up at any point, but hey, fine, whatever. You know. <laughs> and like some quite cool bits about the film it does feature that reference of metalheads again because there's like some metalhead guys like riding on the bus that he keeps going on um and there's quite a cool scene like did you like the scene with the hand inside the vending machine that was quite cool yeah i there's a couple of like interesting bits but i mean there's some terrible cgi really awful cgi this is a uh, unfortunately rick Bota's films they all suffer from really bad cgi and um yeah there's a scene where there's a character who it turns out is basically got two heads and yeah that just looked awful oh god yeah i hated that bit hated it there's a scene where trevor regurgitates this eel i think it was an eel maybe it was supposed to be a fish that kind of comes out of his mouth at one point oh yeah um but yeah, um, it wasn't horrible. It was just, as you said, very four out of ten-y yeah. is kind of the way I put it. Yeah. It's like, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but it was just not all that interesting. Yeah, it wasn't, it didn't stand out and I wouldn't really recommend it. Yeah, I, I'm the same. It's kind of not really all that great, although it is better than all three films that followed it. Yeah, there's quite a cool standout quote from um, this one as well, which is, welcome to the worst nightmare of all reality. Yes. So that was quite cool. Yeah. So a couple of bits to recommend, but overall, not so much. So um, we come up to the seventh film. Yes, there are still more to go, um, which is Hellraiser Deader. Um, however, very interesting little side note. Um, I read online. Now, you know, I mentioned earlier that Miramax, they own the rights to all these other horror franchises. Um, so this is around the time that Freddy vs. Jason came out. And... Miramax at one point apparently they were going to do Pinhead versus Michael Myers. Oh, okay. So Pinhead would be like the equivalent of Freddy and Mike Myers would be the equivalent of Jason. So um would that have been something you'd have been interested in? God, it sounds like a recipe for disaster really, doesn't it? What about you? Well, um yeah, I'm glad it didn't happen just because I don't see how it would have worked personally. Yeah, how are they even connected? I can't even picture them in the same way to be fair it's not like it's not logical i know it's not supposed to be logical because it's a film and it's you know surreal and you know (laughs) well it is it's not supposed to make complete sense but in my mind they don't belong in the same territory or world 
No, but then again, neither do Freddy or Jason. They still to yeah, they still made that. I don't know. Would it have made money? Probably. It would have been shit though. I think so. Kind of glad they didn't do it. Um, so instead, they made Hellraiser Deader, uh, which is also directed by Rick Bota. So not really much to be said about this one. I will leave the synopsis to you. Okay, so Hellraiser Deader. Yeah, straight away I didn't like the title. Um, when you realise why they've called it Deader and you get this concept revealed of the Deaders in this film, it just becomes even more lame, in my opinion. It's a 2005 film. Um, brief synopsis. A journalist uncovers an underground group who can bring back the dead and slowly becomes drawn into their world. So these Deaders are people that can revive the dead, um, which somehow links into these realms of hell and bargaining and all the rest of it, as we know. And it's just yet another kind of quite lame plot with using a journalist, like they've used a reporter before, so it kind of felt like it had already been done. And don't really have that much great, you know, nothing that great to say about this film. There are 15 deaths in it, so it's quite high on the body count. Um, what do you make of it, Greg? Um, well, I thought it was the most boring of the Hellraiser films by far. Yeah, let's just say that as a plot, it was deader than the previous <laughs> Hellraiser films. Yes. Um, in general, deader as a film overall. <laughs> is well deader as you said it's a terrible title i have no idea why they decided to call it this they they obviously just wanted to coin this new concept that would get people talking about it like they didn't know what the term deader meant because it doesn't make any sense and it isn't and so i bet they just thought they were just coining this cool new term but it's just not really worked so i didn't like this film yeah um there isn't really a lot to say as you said it's a reporter she's investigating these people who are deaders a video gets sent to office and what i found interesting is this is clearly supposed to be a home video but yet there's cuts in it so it's like how does that work if they edited this before they sent it um i always find that amusing and most of it takes place in eastern europe because that's you know it's cheap to film there, obviously. Oh, they actually wrote that into the plot, didn't they? That that's where everybody's going at the moment and that that's where they were going to go. So it explained the setting. Yeah. But yeah, it did seem a little odd. I think it's like Bucharest or Budapest or something. It's I did... Bucharest. Bu- yeah. Bucharest, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. They just all, yeah, just go to Eastern Europe. Um, yeah, it's very similar to all the Boaters sort of Hellraiser films. There's, uh, you've got a character who sees things that aren't actually there and has dreams. Um, that seems to be like what happens in all these films. Um, it's just, it's really not very interesting at all. I was just, I don't know. I'm bored even talking about it, to be honest. Yeah. It's just that dull, really. I was, I was very disappointed and I read um, a review on IMDb whilst I was watching it. Um, and it says somebody has put on IMDb, um, whoever made this monstrosity deserves to feel the wrath of Pinhead's chains, which I thought was really funny. So, yeah, it just kind of shows you, like, you know, apart from Inferno, which we both thought was quite an interesting film, you know, you can't literally just take any old story and just, well, let's just put Cenobites in it. You know, <laughs> that just, it doesn't work like that. You know, it has to make sense. Although any kind of, like, links to, like, the first film or the second film are just long gone by this point. It's just long gone. There's no attempt whatsoever to it to make any coherent sense or 
anything like that. It's just, you know... That's the it's, problem. It's, yeah. That's the problem with it. That is why it's so terrible and why it's so boring, because you can't relate to the things that you love about it, aside from the character Pinhead. I mean, all the, all the complexity of the character and the motives in, like, the first one and how they continued on from that was awesome. Like, you really wanted to know, like, what was going to happen whereas with this it just feels so forced and just yeah a bit wet like like i said about the journalist um <laughs> Very the wet. journalist idea it just feels like an easy way out it's like well we'll have somebody investigate the history of what we've already done because that's a great way to construct a storyline around looking into elements of things that we've used previously it just just doesn't feel clever enough it's not really working hard enough so yeah i wasn't i wasn't too keen on this film <laughs> no no neither was i um fuck it let's just move on because like, there isn't really a, a lot really we can say about that one so yeah that brings us to the eighth film so this is uh, hellraiser hell world which is the third and final thankfully film directed by rick bota and essentially this makes hellraiser fans look like massive geeks yeah it does yeah so like i said 2005 film when i read the synopsis for this before i watched this film so i'm like what what more could they possibly do with this franchise i just laugh so much um so the synopsis is gamers playing an mmorpg game which is uh what does this even stand for greg it's um, it's like uh, role-playing yeah, games, isn't it? Basically, something what, like what? that, yeah. I don't remember the MM, but basically online role-playing games. So computer gamers, that's the geek connection here. <laughs> so game gamers playing um, MMORPG based on the Hellraiser franchise find their lives endangered after being invited to a rave, the host of which intends to show them the truth behind the Cenobite myths. Um, and the tagline on the poster or the the DVD covers or VHS cover or whatever it was that people purchased at the time um, was uh, Evil Goes Online. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all, yeah, it's getting a little ridiculous by this point. It was This one was better than the last films? Better than um, the seventh one, I would say, but mm. yeah, I don't like the concept. It doesn't fit with Hellraiser and I don't really like to watch films about online role-playing games <laughs> <laughs> um i it wasn't as boring as the previous film it is horrendous though it's horrendous for a number of reasons first of all like you said it makes people who like hellraiser look like the biggest geeks in the whole world so the the main characters they're all just like oh, i don't know it just it just all looked really lame and it's like i thought they were two couples but actually none of them were like with each other at all so yeah i don't know that confused me that confused me also and like i said about subculture groups before i just felt like this is another one they're like okay metal fans like hellraiser oh but also gamers could quite like hellraiser 2 so why don't we tap into that by telling them this film is all about them you know so it's just like they're they're just like targeting those subculture groups but they're just making it too cliche and obvious and like they could still get those groups buying into the franchise without like laying it out there in such a cliche and cheesy way 
Yeah, yeah, I get where you're coming from. Um, but I mean, they did that much better in previous films, like you know, in Hellraiser three, as we talked about much much earlier at the start of the show. Yeah. Um, things about this annoyed me. So um, I think uh, whoever wrote this film had obviously just seen Saw. So this is very very similar to Saw. Uh, the Saw franchise in itself, I think, owes a lot of debt to Hellraiser because a yeah. lot of it is conceptually very similar. I agree. I really do like the Saw franchise, and I was about to say before when we said about the fact that um, the continuation in this franchise and linking back to the original plots and the characters and everything, it gets lost along the way, which is what makes this franchise disappointing towards the end, whereas I feel that Saw, um, which obviously came after Hellraiser, they've rectified that by keeping the links throughout and keeping the plots stronger. I know some people don't necessarily like the sequels in that, but I do. I feel like it's quite consistent and quite strong where Hellraiser falls down. But they have obviously been very inspired by this franchise, and like you say, they do owe it a lot. Yeah, I mean, in this film, like the editing, there's some really annoying kind of sudden fast motion editing that is very music video-like that, again, is used a lot in Saw. One of the deaths is basically, the first death is actually a total rip-off of something that would happen in Saw. The whole, like, the host character played by Lance Hendrickson, who's a legend, don't know why he's in this film, though. He, again, is very, very similar to John Kramer's character in Saw. It's just just a big old Saw rip-off. Yeah, well, so there are, I mean, I did pull out a couple of, a few positives from this film to try and sort of, you know, say something that I liked about it. But the bits that annoyed me whilst we're on a bit of a rant about this, and <laughs> um, some like cheesy as fuck bits. It's like, oh, this is, I've written down quite a list of them. Oh, actually. God, okay. So, <laughs> hey, feel <laughs> free, rant into- away. <laughs> Must have been enjoying that whilst I was watching it right in this ranty list. So there's a topless girl in a leather jacket at a party. Um, she like walks down and basically she's got no top on but just an open leather jacket on. That really annoyed me because it's like, you just wouldn't do that at parties. <laughs> just don't. Um, there's also, so this couple, well, I thought it was a couple. So it's Jake and Chelsea, but they keep repeating each other's names. It's like, Jake, Chelsea, all the way through. I noticed that as well. It's annoying. She's kind of one of those irritating blonde bimbo types, which really annoys me um, because I just, I kind of like, I don't know, I find that stereotype of blonde bimbo like ironic and funny, but at the same time, it's really annoying when it's actually like a serious character in it. I hate that. So (laughs) there's like a, a... cheesy chat line where one of the characters says i'd love to see your puzzle box <sighs> blur okay <laughs> right and then there's like a really bad blowjob scene where oh, the girl's God, got yes. a mask on her head and i was just like oh this is it just went on too long and you can just see the mask move up and die it really grossed me out i was like this is completely unnecessary yeah and because, uh, like, is it an actual blowjob or are they just pretending? That's what I was confused by. No, she's actually doing it in a nightclub, but oh, the, it, because she's got the mask on the top of her head, it's supposed to be kind of hiding it and nobody notices around her, but it's, obvi- it's obvious. <sighs> so that just, was just kind of, like, just cheap and I didn't like it. Um, what else? Oh, there's like a really cheesy sunrise comment at the end, which I didn't like, and it was supposed to be like romantic and shit, but I didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
good old Jake and Chelsea. Yeah, and it, yeah. Did, it did get quite um, uh, confusing. Mm, my concluding word at the end of this review was crappy. So. <laughs> um, bits that I found funny are where they have all the old Nokia phones where they give everyone <laughs> just it's just again it's just hilarious because I used to have a phone like that but yeah in 2005 or whenever the fuck this film is supposed to be made so well, it's just when, when it was funny. when it was 10 pence a text and you used to get like I don't know 60 characters per text and that was your limit it was probably at that time <laughs> yeah yeah it was so stupid um so one of the, uh, well, I say interesting, it's probably the wrong word. Superman is in this film. So Henry Cavill is in it and he gives a great acting performance. No, really, it's fucking awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, he gives a really, really awful performance in this. I'm sure, like, you know, when Henry Cavill, like, looks back at, like, his career and go, look at all the things he's done, all the stuff he's done on TV, all the stuff he's done on film, I'm sure he doesn't look at this and go, yeah, you know, it was a great film to be in this one. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are a few, like, sort of standout quotes there's one that was like your dreams are over your nightmares are just about to begin which is quite cool and there's one where it's like it was a little cheesy but they kind of got away with it i, I beat you guys at your own game because it's like again it's the role-playing gamer sort of aspect of the film and got like there was a few where he was like come on chelsea let's raise some hell and it was, it was pretty cool you know like not too cheesy and yeah, just to kind of tidy this one up, it's just the ending or the last sort of 10 minutes is unbelievably shit. Like I've talked about bad endings, how like I didn't really like the ending of Hellraiser. And I didn't really like the ending of, I don't know, a couple of the other films really for one reason or another. But yeah, the ending in this is just ridiculously terrible. I actually didn't mind the ending too much because I quite like the, the coffin aspect of it, which I'm sure you'll explain in a second. Um, and the sort of, like, it was like, it was quite a good twist that I didn't see coming, but I can see why you thought it was shit as well, because it, again, it's a little wishy-washy, the plot, you know, it didn't really make that much sense. Well, no, I mean, again, it's, this is so, from five onwards, basically all the films have been, like, stories that didn't have Pinhead in and they've basically crowbarred Pinhead in there somewhere or another. Now, more, some more successfully than others. This one, literally, you didn't need Pinhead at all. You could have made this literally about anything. It's basically a dad who wants to get revenge on his friends, on his dead son's friends, for some reason. And, you know, he would have gotten away with it, except essentially the police got called by a ghost, which is really fucking <laughs> stupid. So a yeah. ghost basically saved Chelsea and Jake. That was lame. That was lame, yeah. Fucking lame. And then, yeah, Lance Hendrickson manages somehow to get away, but then the Cenobites come and they get him, which feels just, I don't know, that whole thing just felt really tacked on. Like, they just did it because, I don't know, they didn't want to end the, the film on a bum ending, so they just kind of like, well, fuck it, we'll just do this. Yeah. And yeah. that sucked. It, do, it did suck. Um, I quite like the so the fact that the teenagers were all revealed to be in coffins buried, so they were imagining everything like and they had their little Nokia's down there or whatever. Um, so but because they were imagining everything so vividly, it actually backfired, and instead of being safely buried under the ground where nobody could find them, just um, living in their own personal 
hell and torment inside their head actually backfired and caused them to cause themselves harm whilst they were in this kind of trance-like state that he had put them into. So one of them had some kind of neck device, but they imagined that it was so real that they'd clawed into their own neck and they'd killed themselves and just, you know, various um, real relations to what they were imagining in their head led them to kill themselves, aside from, obviously, our romantic couple, uh, <laughs> uh, Chelsea and... What's his face? <laughs> Jake. <laughs> yeah, Jake. Jake. What, what's Jake his face? And, his name doesn't matter. Jake, Jake and Chelsea. They obviously survived just so they could see the sunset or some rubbish like yeah, that. Yeah, oh, I don't know. So, so it wasn't like I didn't mind that too much because I quite liked the reveal of where they dug up the coffins and they were really dead in there and that was kind of cool. Um, but like you say, it was a little lame at the end aside from a decent blade death that um, Pinhead issues to the dad or the host um but yeah cheesy and really not not a good film in this franchise no no a fucking horrendous film in the franchise um and there's an interesting debate to be had which we're gonna have in a minute um however um before we move on to the next film um there have been rumors for years about a remake of hellraiser now these kind of ended up sort of centred around 2011-2012 because originally um, the rumours were that Clive Barker was in fact going to be involved in some way, shape or form. It had his blessing, but it's just never happened, really. I mean, how do you feel about a remake of Hellraiser? Well, I heard the rumour of remake, but as I understood it, they decided to do another sequel. Um, and then I'd heard that it wasn't going to happen and I was kind of a little relieved because I wasn't sure how this was going to go. Um, so I think, like, I don't know, I think they've got potential to do something to redeem all of these terrible sequels like they have done with, with other similar horror films. Um, but at the same time, I'm so apprehensive because they've done so many terrible things with this franchise, like especially towards the end, that... Do you know if I want them to. So, how do you feel about it? Um, any remakes like this are obviously very bad. I mean, you can do a good horror remake. I'm not saying it's impossible because there are examples out there. But for a franchise like this, they'll just get it wrong. They'll get it completely wrong. Now, yeah, great. If Clive Barker was involved, then maybe you know it would be good. But he was involved in number three and number four. And number yeah. six, technically. And all those movies were not all that great compared to the first one anyway. So, In my opinion, Clive Barker would have to be heavily involved to make this uh, this remake or reimagining or sequel a very decent film. Like, I think that's the key element is him and his imagination. He's obviously amazing at that. Um, but from what I've heard, he's, he's quite unwell. Um, and so I'm not sure if that would happen or whether he'd work on any more. It looks t- to me like he wouldn't do. Um, what's interesting about what you said before is like with this Hell World film from 2005, the first Saw film came out in 2004, and like you say, it influenced that whole franchise. And they, they've just announced the name of the new Saw film that's going to be coming out. I think it's later this year, probably October. Um, which is Jigsaw. So it's like 
going back to that whole the creator of the whole franchise and the one who is like behind the whole operation which is a little bit like what they tried to do in Hellraiser and they didn't really get there with the engineer. So it's really interesting. So I'm wondering, like, with you saying that Hellraiser was eventually influenced by Saw, which in turn was probably influenced by Hellraiser before that was made, um, I wonder if they'll take inspiration from Saw if they do do a Hellraiser remake and it might be a little like that. It just seems so closely connected now, like they're borrowing from each other. Hmm. But yeah, the uh, the remake hasn't happened. So essentially what needed to happen was in order for Dimension to keep the rights, they had to make a film, otherwise they would lose the rights. So what they did is instead of doing a remake, which was just stuck in development hell, um, they made Hellraiser Revelations, which is the ninth and so far most recent film in the franchise. So this is directed by a guy called Victor Garcia, whose previous films include such horror masterpieces as Return to House on Haunted Hill and Mirrors 2. Um, Obviously, he was the best person available. And really, the story of this is, it's just, I mean, a lot of people hate this film really just for what it stands for, really more than what the actual film itself is. It's essentially, the film was made in about two weeks, but not very much money in two locations, and they just did it as fastly and as cheaply as possible just to keep the rights. And what's interesting, and this is the most well-known thing about this film, is this this is the first Hellraiser film that Doug Bradley did not appear in as Pinhead. They got some constipated-looking guy to be Pinhead instead. Like, what a big mistake that was. This is a fucking terrible film and he's got a green face and Pinhead should not have a green face. <laughs> he does have a green face, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Hellraiser Revelations. It's a 2011 film, um, which they should not have made. Two friends discover a puzzle box in Mexico which unleashes Cenobite Pinhead. Oh, really? Pinhead's a Cenobite? We didn't know that because we've not actually heard of any other Hellraiser films prior to It's like the other eight. Oh my god, like as if they need to point out the obvious in this. No shit, Sherlock. So this is definitely the worst in the franchise and it's a huge mistake not not to have the original actor who plays Pinhead in this film because it's a goddamn mess and he is terrible in it. And it's not even his voice. They got No, some it's dude. not his voice, is it? It's some random dude who sounds constipated as well. So they got an actor who looks constipated and a voice actor who sounds constipated as well. And it's just like, oh, I don't know. Oh, they just, <laughs> nobody can carry it off like Doug Bradley does. So this is just very unfortunate. And then they have this kind of second, like, mini-me pinhead, like a pseudo-pinhead, where he looked like he had strips of bacon stuck on his face. <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh, add to that that they jumped on the whole found footage bandwagon and they threw that in there, plus some kind of subplot of uh, a girl's brother and boyfriend going on holiday to Mexico together and they're just going to basically get laid with like prostitutes and then not tell her about it. And obviously she finds out because they die. And it's, that's just so lame. And then it's like, it's set in Mexico... God knows why, but uh, yeah, it's like then you're kind of thinking, well, is that where the puzzle box is supposed to come from in the first place? Because that's the only logical connection that I would like to make for them to make a point of making a film in Mexico. Why was it there? You know, it doesn't seem like in the first one that that's where it is. Uh, Do they drink a lot of absinthe in Mexico? 
don't know, it's a more like right. it was tequila. Tequila, tequila. Yeah. yeah. So also there's like a female chatterer, a female Cenobi in this, which I didn't like. Um, I didn't like the way that they changed the chatterer. Um, that really annoyed me, to be honest. Um, we've got eight deaths in this. Wow, so, so uh, you really hated this one then? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, like, I had to pause it and then like take a break and then watch the rest of it because it was just boring me to death. And this film isn't even very long. It's only 70 minutes long. This is another kind of lazy thing of the film. It's like, you know, it's just only like barely over an hour long. And yet, yeah, it's just not very good. And yeah, you've already mentioned kind of a lot of the things I hated. So obviously, when you think of Hellraiser, you think of found footage. Um, So that's what this starts off as. And I thought the whole film was going to be found footage. So I was like, oh, God, (laughs) please no. (laughs) Um, Luckily, the found footage aspect isn't there for very long, but it's still very shit. You've got two very annoying characters. Lots of like character motivations that make no sense. So as you said, it's two friends, um, one of whom is going out with the other one's sister, and you know, no one seems to be bothered that like he is cheating on his girlfriend, who's this guy's sister. It's lazy. You can tell they've literally like, you know, for all these different clubs that they go to, you can tell they've blatantly used the same set and just moved things about a bit they see these prostitutes one of whom isn't even mexican like they're i don't know vietnamese or something like that and i think they're trying to pass her off as mexican plus she's she's a really terrible actress and just really looks really young and vulnerable but not in like the kind of she's acting like that kind of way it's just that she looks like she's been forced into this role and she looks (laughs) uncomfortable (laughs) probably um the only positives that I can pull out. So instead of pulling out negatives, I'm going to try and pull out positives in this one. Is that at least they've tried to do like a, a Hellraiser film and they they fail. But hey, at least they at least tried to do that. Um, so they it's a lot of riffing on like the first film. So you've got you know a character being brought back from the dead through sort of killing people in a bed. Um, you've got a character wearing another character's skin, even though that part is terrible. Oh God, yeah. When he comes up through the mattress, it's pretty lame as well. You can just see that they've cut the mattress away and he's kind of lying under it or something. Yeah. Um. The gore effects, I mean, in fairness, like the, the gore effects are pretty consistent um, because they're all done by the same person. So the guy who does the gore effects is a guy called Gary J. Tunnicliffe, um, who's actually worked on every Hellraiser film since the third one. Um, and he actually wrote the screenplay for this film. So the gore effects are at least, you know, okay. They at least don't look totally shit considering how low the budget was. But yeah, other than that, the film is just, it's just, I say it's just a massive kind of just desperate attempt. It just reminded me of like, I mean, you work at, you know, a comic book shop. Well, you work at a company that sells sort of comic books and geek merchandise. Yeah. You may have heard of a Fantastic Four movie, um, which was produced by Roger Corman, which got, you know, really, really cheap, was only made just so that the company could keep the rights to the Fantastic Four. And it was just horrendous. And that's literally the only reason they did it. And it's just the same thing with this. It's just, yeah, um, not well, uh, really a lot of positive things to say about it. I'm going to try and pick out some positives too, because I'm trying to do that with each of these films also. But but first, a few more negatives. <laughs> okay, um, go ahead. <laughs> I don't like the name Nico. It really annoyed me. don't know why. It <laughs> just seems so lame. Also, there, there are two female Cenobites 
kissing in the background at one point, like like some kind of lesbian Cenobite kissing scene, and I was just like, how is this valid to the plot at all? And again, it was all a bit Silent Hill. They just kind of had masks across their face. Uh, I noted down here it just gets worse as it goes along instead of getting better. Um, our bearded uh, vagrant turns up again, and he says something along the lines of death is a finality. And there's a lot of references to like, oh, they want you to, they want to experience your flesh. They keep saying this a lot. And it's that kind of reference to sort of sexual nature or, or gore. Um, which is, which is kind of, that's one of the positives. I think I didn't take that to me. It wasn't cheesy. It was, that was kind of what, that's the element that reminded me of the previous Hellraiser films that I liked was just some, a couple of standout quotes like that. Hmm. But yeah, of of the eight deaths, yeah, like none of them really stood out that much. Hmm. Probably not. No. So yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay, I thought of a positive. I had to dig oh, okay, deep. fair enough. I had to dig deep, but um, yeah, like you say, with the gore effects, the consistency in that, so the consistent nature of the uh, like kind of skinless characters in films they had that again which i do really like and i feel like it's just such a key part of hellraiser films because it never seems to get boring and it always seems to surprise and shock me when you see characters that look like i say that kind of inside out sort of way that they are with like the red or like all red with just the eyes showing and with like the muscles all showing on on the skeleton like every time it gets me and it's just so clever and it's just so like it's just so hellraiser all i can think of now is uh inside out but with the skinless people in it from hellraiser instead it's like that'd be a very <laughs> different movie <laughs> now you'll be very pleased to know that there is actually a new hellraiser film it's due out this year apparently although god knows when it actually will come out it could come out at any time it could be out now for all i know uh, it's called hellraiser judgment and it's directed by gary j tunnicliffe and it's another actor so not the same guy who played pinhead in hellraiser revelation it's a totally different actor again again not doug bradley oh god it just looks like more of the same it's probably going to be a massive piece of shit jesus wept as frank said (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly i hope it's not an absolute train wreck like i'm probably going to go and watch it but it just raises the question what's it going to be is it going to be a sequel is it going to be a prequel i bet it's going to be a sequel and I'm going to predict that it's going to be probably better than Hellraiser 4 Plus, but still not that great. <laughs> um, Let's see. It, in fairness, it can't be any worse than the previous two films, so it's got a very, very low bar to cross, let's put it that way. Um, so, you had counted up all the, the deaths in all of the films... Okay, yeah, so I'll I'll run through and then I'll give you the total. So the first film, we've got eight deaths. Um, Hellraiser 2, we've got 28. In Hellraiser 3, we had 23, although it could have possibly been more, but those are on screen. Um, Hellraiser 4, just six deaths. Hellraiser 5, 16 deaths. Hellraiser 6, 11 deaths. Hellraiser 7, 15 deaths. Hellraiser 8, six deaths. And Hellraiser 9, we had 8 deaths. And in total, it's 121 on-screen deaths in this franchise. Yeah, that's a a lot of deaths, although 
less than Friday the 13th probably but uh, yeah that's still a lot though so now that we've come to the end of kind of our discussion of the Hellraiser franchise as a whole I mean you had only seen the first three films previously hadn't you yeah I actually used to work um so when I was a university student um in Manchester I used to uh, I used to work part-time at like a DVD and music shop called Music Zone and the limited edition four disc box set in the puzzle box DVD um limited case so you like take the lid off and the sides of the puzzle box open and it's got like a disc in each section of it which is pretty cool that came out like whilst I was um working um in Manchester at this music shop um and I was so excited and it was like such a cool thing everybody was like going on about it so I bought that and I what I'd already seen the first one but then I watched the first three sort of like the same week and I thought that I thought they were pretty great but then I never pursued the others because I had been warned by fellow horror fans that um that they weren't good and it was best to just stick with the first three if you enjoyed that so as not to spoil it so now I've finally watched all nine um so (laughs) I'm not sure if I'm glad that I've watched all nine but I think with the new sequel coming out this year, I think it is great that we've been able to cover all of it and pick out aspects that I like from each and just to compare it all to see what they where they take it from here. Um, but if I was to recommend somebody to buy, I mean, this box set is really cool. I love having it on my shelf in my room. It uh, looks just like the puzzle box. If I was to recommend purchasing a, um, a box set, I would say to buy this because it looks awesome and the first three films are the best. So you can't go wrong with that one. Whether you want to watch the rest of them like we did and be a completist is is totally up to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my opinion is, yes, the first two are absolutely essential. Probably the third one if you don't mind the cheesiness of it. Um, The fifth one is quite good and has some merits. The fourth one is sort of interesting in a way if you can look past kind of the ridiculousness of it. Um, You don't need to see any of the others. So really, I would say you can probably watch the first five, but really you only need to see one and two really once you to be honest you probably don't even need to see two you can just literally just stick with the first one you're really missing nothing (laughs) that amazing with like the rest but i mean if you're a fan one and two would be my way to go yeah i agree that's that's for the core fans and like i feel like you need to have seen those two um in order to you know if you're going to watch the sequel that comes out this year my prediction was would be that you need to see the first two in order to continue watching yeah, absolutely. So it'd be interesting to see if like uh, Hellraiser Judgment does actually come out, um, because I'm sure we will uh, mention it at some point as a, in our review of the second half of 2017, coming at the end of the year. Um, however, we have come to the end of our discussion of Hellraiser. Um, I thank you all very much for listening. Um, I hope you, well, we certainly lived Hellraiser, I certainly have, for the last two weeks or so that we've been kind of doing this these shows. 
If you have already subscribed, I want to thank you very much, be it on iTunes, on YouTube, on Podbean or on TuneIn Radio. Um, If you have not done so already, um, you can go to our Facebook page and you can like us and then you'll get all the lovely updates that we uh, put up on our page. Um, So yeah, thank you very much for doing that. As always, I've been resident Death Count Girl, Reoffend, Alternative Model and Actress and I'm on Facebook as Reoffend, that's F-E-N-D. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram as Rea underscore Fend. And my final question for the show is, uh, which did you find more exhilarating, the pain or the pleasure? Personally, I prefer pain. See you in hell. <laughs>